So uh, we began our time in Genesis um, roughly uh, last week, dealing with the first chapter and the ideas of what it means that Moses has penned here for us, that is, the people of God, a creation story or a story of origins. And, and I made this um, uh, argument last time, and we'll continue to follow this thread as we go forward in Genesis, that Genesis, that is the primary concern of Genesis and the account of origins, the primary concern. So when you're reading in the beginning and you go from there, what is the primary concern that Moses seeks to impress upon you, to wrap your mind around and introduce you to the primary concern of the Genesis account or the account of origins is theology. That is the primary concern. That is, as we open up Genesis 1... The, the impression that Moses is giving to us by divine inspiration, indeed without error, is to overwhelm us. And, and by overwhelm, I don't mean uh, kind of emotionally uh, uh, coming undone. But what I mean by overwhelming us as we begin to read the account of origins of the universe is to make us thankful. To impress upon us a gratitude. That when we, the people of God, read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that we would be moved with hopefulness. That is, that the truth, that things which are plainly perceived, observable, known, felt, tasted, touched, did not create themselves. But that they proceed from a sovereign workman to whom all praise and obedience is to be rendered. That's the impression of Genesis 1. The concern and the focus of the opening words of origins is that all things proceed from a sovereign workman. In fact, this is so impressed upon us at the beginning of Genesis that God appears as the subject And, of course, we would say by inspiration and inerrancy, purposefully so. God appears as a subject of over 30 sentences right here at the very beginning of Origins. Think about that. That is how we then arrive at the conclusion. Indeed, the force of Genesis is theology. That you would see the sovereign workman. That he is the subject of Origins. He is to whom all things are made, by whom all things are made, and for whom all things are made and exist. He bursts onto the page of Scripture as light shining into darkness. Paul will make that argument in Romans 4. Again, as though light shining into darkness, showing himself everywhere in the text of Genesis, as we'll see just for a brief moment this morning. And I do mean brief. I know you're nervous. Don't worry. We'll get there. But again, he bursts onto the page, showing himself everywhere at every pass to be absolutely sovereign, majestic, powerful, righteous, and good. This is who we're introduced to when we read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There are four, uh, as you work through um, the origin story, and as you kind of consider how would we present the material um, uh, of Genesis 1, because it's tricky, right? There's facts. There's a statement of fact 
God said this, and then these things occurred. And, and so how you work through that and how you present that. And what is it that we, the people of God, are, are, are learning and, and, and reaping the benefits of by reading and rehearsing these statements? Hopefully I've touched on just a few of them just briefly for a moment. Um, we're introduced to the sovereign workman. To bring gratitude to our lives. But there's four theological truths that, that I want to touch on this morning that, that are good and necessary inferences, or there are implications of the fact that we have these statements, like, in the beginning, God. There's an implication there for us uh, um, to, be, to be received, to be meditated upon. So I want to face it that way this morning. And then next week, I plan on doing the first three days, and then hopefully we'll do the next three days. And that's kind of how the text will break down for us. But this morning, I want to impress upon each of us together these four important theological truths that we are taught here in the very opening sections of the origins of all that we see and can't. The very first one, and I'll try to briefly touch on each one so that we can move uh, forward in our time together, but number one, the very first theological truth that we receive simply in the statement, in the beginning, God, is this, God simply is. That, that's important. That, that is, in other words, if, if we see the text, the way that Moses here in the plains of Moab, writing for the people of Israel, that is to the church of Jesus Christ. As he begins and sets up to write this epic story, right, of truth and origins and how the things really are, he writes, in the very beginning, in the beginning, God. That is, God if we receive the obvious implication from Moses, and that is, as God would reveal himself to us, he is without origin. When um, later in Exodus 3, when, Moses, when, when, he, when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 3.13, you remember this conversation, I'm sure, Moses, and I'll quote to you from Exodus 3.13, he says, quote, Then Moses said to God, If I am to come to the people of Israel, right? So he's going to go, and the exodus is going to occur, and here is Moses, minister par excellence of the Old Covenant. Moses said to God, If I am to come to the people of Israel and say to them, uh, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. So this this is going to occur. If I go to them and I say this, the the, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? You you tell, the the God of your fathers sent me to you. What's his name? Moses says, what shall I say to them? A key point, a critical aspect of the delivery of the Exodus and the actions that flow from it. Who sent you over here to tell us all that? Who told you that we should follow you? Who took? Well, the God of your fathers. Who is he by name? Who is that? Fair question. What should I say to them? It's very similar to Genesis. The text reads this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. End quote. And then he expounded, I am. You tell him, I am who I am, period. I simply, I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. 
Now, again, what does this have to do with creation? How is this the necessary inference of the verse 1? In the beginning, God, the story of origins. Who is God? In the beginning, who is that? I am is who it is. He simply is. He exists. He has no origin. Again, what does this mean for creation? Well, again, it's an easy conclusion to make. You see, he who simply is, that is, is, I am, he who simply is faces no force outside of himself that can rival his absolute freedom. You see, he owes his existence to no one. Thus, it renders that no force outside of himself can rival his absolute freedom. In other words, what does this mean but that God, as introduced to us here, and is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, does all he sees fit to do? We said this together as in our time in the prophecies. We've been working through Isaiah. We said this together just a couple of weeks ago. You and I together, the people of God, we confess this very truth. We just said it later out in the canon in Isaiah 46.9. Listen, he, this is what he says. Quote, remember the former things of old. To you. He says this to you. Remember the former things of old. Call them to mind. For I am God. And then he adds this, to bolster the hope of his people. And there is no other. There is no rival. There is no challenger. He goes on, I am God. Who should I tell them that, that, that sent me to you? The God of their fathers. Who, what is your name? I am that, 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 that's it. I, 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 I'm pure, actual. I, I, I am. I am God and there is no one like me. Meaning, meaning there is no rival. There is no challenger. I'm absolute. I am. And then he goes on. What is an, what is an example of, uh, of his power as God? He says this, declaring. This is the bolster, the idea. I am God and there is none like me. What are you like? He says, declaring the end from the beginning, origins. And from the ancient times, things not yet done. No one can declare them. But then he says this, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. How can we be so sure? Because he is. And he has no rivals. You see, this thought that God exists, that in the beginning there was no other, that he owes his existence to no one, to no thing, to no burst of energy, but that he is, is a word of goodness and a word of consolation. You have a lot, if you're a believer here this morning, you have a lot banking on him. Right? 
that, that he can fulfill what he has taught you and instructed you, that he can deliver, that in the waters of baptism that we saw the promise of, and we'll see it yet again attested in the sacred sacrament as there are two holy sacraments. We saw that, that, that Pastor Dan then buried someone in the waters of baptism and then proclaimed that they were buried in the likeness of his death and that they are going to be raised in the likeness of his resurrection. That is the hope of the Christian faith. And yet, if he has a challenger or a rival outside of himself, that promise stands in jeopardy. But what we have here is that I am God and there is no other. It is a word of goodness and consolation, the fact that in the beginning, God. The, the second uh, important theological truth, uh, again, number one, that God simply is. And number two, that God exists outside of time. God exists outside of of time, and you see that because Moses here frames it uh, uh, where time began. Uh, it's important to note that creation is not a moment in eternity, right? Um, uh, th- that is, that the eternity is not made up of a succession of time and moments. Um, it, this is the beginning of time as a construct. In the beginning, that is. It marks the beginning of time as we know it. Why is that significance here that we recognize God began the concept or the construct of time? How do we think of time? Well, we recognize that within time, all that comes after this very beginning. If you look at your text, in the beginning is the beginning of time. Everything that flows from that moving forward in the text is subject to the end of that time. You see, existence in time, of which God is not, but existence in time, think about this just for a moment, because you exist in time. We're having a moment of time now. Existence in time is the necessary form. It's, it's the necessary form of all that is finite and created. You exist in time. This is where you get this saying, the age-old saying, Father Time is undefeated. You're going to die. I'm going to die. We all are going to die. No one has outlived Father Time racing down the road. Even Tom Brady, even Tom Brady, I look for John Parker in here, but anyway, even Tom Brady, I know he thinks by this weird diet he'll live forever, but it's not true. Um, Father Time is undefeated. Um, Everything that is in the beginning is subject to the beginning's end. It's the necessary condition of being finite. Whereas if you think about it as it's introduced to us here, in the beginning, God was active. That is, God started the beginning of time as a construct because God is essentially different. That is, in his essence, he is different than us. He is not subject to time. He is infinite, beyond time, sees all things in an eternal moment. As we just mentioned, 
God was never brought into being. And then if you add that he was never brought into being, you can add then the fact that he initiated the construct of time to recognize, therefore, neither is he subject to time and its decay. Why is this significant to us? Because it means that God alone towers above process. He towers above it. He is not subject to time and its decay. He is not subject to the worries of the world. He is not running out of energy when you are. He's not going to bed. This is something significant to our house. The God that is awake all night long. We need to pray together. Let's go to bed. I come into my room. I'm a little bit nervous. Why can't you sleep? Because I think this. Because I think that. I think that. I think this. I think that. It's really dark outside. They could probably be hiding here. They could probably do this because it's dark out. Even shaping our children's early theological thoughts is you worship the God who doesn't sleep. He's awake right now. So he sees all the hiding spots. You see, God alone towers above process, and he is not subject to change. Hebrews 13.8 says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. What more do we need to hear? That is the truth, that God is existing outside of time. Psalm 92. I know you know this text, but let me just give you two more. They're so important for us to recognize that we are feeble and frail and we are subject to time. Every single one of us in here recognizes it in a number of different ways. But God is not. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, so he's placing it before time, before this existed, before mountains were brought forth, or on top of that, Ever before you formed the earth and the world, this idea of all things, heaven and earth, before that was ever created, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are. He is. A final text of how we see that God indeed exists outside of time, and therefore he is not subject to it and its decay, is Revelation 1, 8. He says it to the church, I am the alpha point and the omega, says the Lord God. What does that mean? Unpack that for us a little bit so we creatures of time can fathom how to grasp you. Are you subject to process like us? Do you change along the pathway? Should we hope in you here, but maybe not hope in you there? Are you subject to rivals and challengers? No, 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 no. Get, I am the one who's the object of your faith. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord. Okay, yes, and what, how do we conceive of that as creatures? Okay, think like this. Who is, who was, and is to come? The Almighty. You see, it's very similar, very parallel. What should I say? How should I describe you? How should I treasure you in my own mind and heart? Well, as I am who I am, or who is, who was, and is to come. God of God, light of light, the Almighty. 
God exists. And he speaks to us as creatures, as those created and subject to time. He speaks to us from outside of time so that our hope might rest squarely upon him who undergoes no change or process. The third theological truth for us this morning, a good and necessary inference from the very beginning, in the beginning, the the creation of time as a construct, there was God. And that is, thirdly, God is the source of all that is. He is the source of all that is. And, and, and that's an easy one to make, right? It's right here. If you look at verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This, this sense of a, a summary statement wherein we'll see a, 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 some sort of a sequence of events that come after. This summary statement of all that is, all that is observable, touchable, tasteable, feel, sense, anything to the senses. He is the absolute root cause and source of. So when we then say God created the heavens and the earth, that's what I believe. What is the the meat of which I would define that? How would I explain it, in other words, that I really believe God created the heavens and the earth as taught here in Genesis 1.1? Well, what I mean is that by God's sovereign will, he brought into existence all that is without the presence of pre-existent materials. That's what I mean when I say he created. Or we can put it in confessional, creedal language. We did that maybe two weeks ago. And I hope you treasure those moments together of informing and stating our faith together. And then saying creed, we're reminded the very beginning, very first statement of our faith in the Nicene Creed, the great Christian, Christian truth, It starts like this, I believe in one God. What about him? Father Almighty. What do you mean by Almighty? The maker of heaven and earth. And just in case that's not clarifying enough of what I mean by Genesis 1-1 and confessing my Catholic faith, In case it's not clear enough that I do believe in he who made heaven and earth, more specifically what I mean is he made all things visible and invisible. That's what I mean. That all things that are, are the product of his will. And therefore... There is no life that exists apart from him and is independent from him. You see, think about that for a moment. And then combat it in your mind maybe with a Darwinian materialism. Right, because a materialist explanation, that is, in a sense, that you are tissue. 
You're a mass of tissue. And then you put in there a certain, certain selection points where there's some random variations. And it's a, and it's a group of, uh, of movements, of random variations, and, and some measure of what we'd call natural selection. These things working in tandem. And we're not exactly sure percentages or exactly how or for how long. But nonetheless, your tissue is here and now, in time, subject to time, based on random variations in natural selection. But this explanation is riddled with internal contradictions about life, about what it means to be human, riddled with internal contradictions about politics, medicine, morality, ethics, and most importantly, as a word spoken and preached and written to you. It is woefully inadequate and absolutely wrong on anthropology. What it means to be human. And the moral ethics that flow from that. And as a, as a believer, you would, you would confess together, indeed, what I quoted a moment ago in the Nicene Creed. We believe in him who created, Father Almighty, created all things, heaven and earth, things visible that I can touch, taste, feel, and sense, that I can measure and I can reproduce, and things invisible. He did not need any type of material or atomistic energy in order to somehow combine it into the effects of what you see and behold in his glory. He created all things, whether they be visible or invisible. He's the source of all life. The final uh, theological truth that we grasp from this important opening to the life of origins, that is the beginning of all life, or the story of origins, just briefly, again, God is simply is. That is, he is without origin. God exists outside of time because he constructed time. And thirdly, he is the source of all that is in life. And four, God is omnipresent. This we learn as we theologically speak of God and how we describe his presence in time how we describe his providence, how we describe his working in our lives, how we think of him as we rest upon him in prayer in times of, of concern and, and, and hurt. And oftentimes when we pray and consider, are we being heard? But then we confess indeed that we rely upon this truth that God is omnipresent, that he is there with you. We get there in verse 2. If you'll look at verse 2 with me as we kind of wind down our time together and move towards the table. Verse 2. I'll start in verse 1 just so we, we grasp the whole text together and, and see how the story of origins is opening for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, whether things visible or invisible, he created them. Verse 2 the earth then, at that, at that point, and this is the beginning of the, story, the stories of the origin of the, of the earth of which we are a part of. The earth was without form and void. 
And, and then it describes its condition further. And darkness was hovering over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, th- th- this is a critical piece here, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So if you, if you, if you kind of work through verse 2 uh, and the summary statement of verse 1, and then as Moses kind of begins to kind of break down how it occurred or what it looked like as God began his work of creating the earth here, God is giving the rough architectural structure to the earth. That is, heaven and earth as stated here. And and you see it, right? The earth is without form and void. If you translate the terms there, without form and void is fine. It it could be more graphic language if you you needed it. But the point is, it's a wasteland. In in summary, you just simply say, at this point, it is uh, inhospitable or inhabitable to human life or to life forms. So God is giving his rough structural architectural work here to the earth and to the heavens, and he is creating it in and out of nothing. And yet the mysterious element of potential, and this is where I want to conclude, the mysterious element that we're introduced to, this element of potential, anticipation, and even promise, is in the statement, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's the statement of potential. That's the statement of promise. It's an analogy. So you have a creation account, right? A story of origins. This is how things came to be in the physical world. And it is analogous, or it's parallel to the story of the new creation. So you have a creation account that parallels a new creation account. There's a dark and hidden recess. And the Spirit of God is hovering as this promise of bringing forth life, this promise of bringing forth order, this promise of bringing forth goodness, beauty, and truth. And that's exactly what we see beginning at the second portion of the creation account. You see verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and we'll see it next week. First three days, second three days. The analogy is to you, me, the heart that has yet been regenerated. The place inhabitable, the place inhospitable, the human heart of degeneracy. What is the promise held out to the heart that is inhabitable, that is inhospitable? What is the promise held out? At the same agency of creation is the agency of regeneration. At the spirit who hovers over the deep. To the inhospitable place bringing goodness, love, beauty, life. Is the same sovereign spirit who is deployed upon the darkness of the human heart. Producing life. Speaking light into darkness. By the same agency of the sovereign God who has no rivals or challengers. So Christ will say later that the thief comes when he who created all things and sustains all things by the word of his power appears in the incarnation and conducts his ministry. And he says this about the thief. He comes to destroy and to kill in a myriad of forms. That's what thieves do. 
And then in great contrast to that act within creation, our Lord says, but I have come that you may have life. And what quality of life would I have? That which mirrors creation. That which is teeming and bursting with life. By the time we get through the creation narrative, the earth is filled with its ecosystems. It's sustainable. It's providential. The beauty that we all can see and gaze upon now, it's awe-inspiring. This, our Lord speaks, that comes to you through the gospel. What type of life might I have? The same type you see here in the earth's creation is the same quality of life that comes in the new creation. He says simply this, life abundantly. Let us pray. Father, 